is an outline um, on the back that I gave you. It's for it says Second Samuel seven, and then in parentheses, First Chronicles seventeen. There are parallel passages. Um, we're going to spend most of our time in the Second Samuel passage. This is one of the most seminal passages in all the Old Testament, embedded in the books of Samuel, because it has to do with God's covenant with David. And so this is echoed throughout all of Scripture, going frontwards, backwards. You could use this covenant and go all the way back to Abraham. And you can use this covenant to even go back as far as Adam to see how this really kind of applies through all salvation history. This is pretty amazing to see what God promises David here. And he does so in a rather almost ironic way and says, hey, you're promising me this. I'm going to do one better. It's kind of interesting how God responds to David's desire here to build God's house. So let's uh, open with prayer. Lord God in heaven, uh, thank you for your people and how we can gather together and explore your word Thank you that in the midst of trials and in the midst of uh, news that's hard for us to process, that your promises are certain, that your word is eternal, and that you never change. So help us, Lord, when we are in the midst of change and we see suffering and we see death and we see all these things, to cling to your promises so that we can be with you forever. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, 2 Samuel 7. So uh, for those of you who have been in my class, we've done the first the chapters leading up to this, so you already kind of get some context. If you've not been in my class, the chapter right before this is when David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so David is now king. Saul has died. There was a succession dispute uh, in chapters three and four in which people were being killed out of revenge. And it's kind of an honor feud. There's blood killings that are going on. It's kind of nasty, to be honest. And then David ultimately ends up reigning and Saul's house is no more. In fact, David's own wife from Saul's, uh, uh, Saul's children, Michal or Michael, um, is barren because she mocks David and it fulfills that uh, it fulfills that promise by God that Saul's house would be bereft of heirs. And so now it's David. So David's the king and he's the leader of Israel in worship also, in public worship. He wears a linen ephod in chapter 5 and 6 and dances before the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. And that sets us up for 2 Samuel 7. So we're going to go through this chapter, and I have two translations up on the board for you. I'm going to read from the ESV just to get us through the chapter, but there's a, something called the Evangelical Heritage Version. I have that up there for a reason. It comes from the Wisconsin Senate. They actually produced this translation in like 2018 or 19, and the way they translate one of the verses is a big deal. And the commentary that our synod puts out actually agrees with them on this translation. So I want to show you where this is. And usually when I say, what's the best Bible to read? It's the answer is the one you read. Yeah. In other words, I'm not a big one, you know, NIV, ESV, New King James. I mean, I have my favorites, but as long as you're in God's word, 95% of the time we're in good shape, right? So I say, just read God's word, okay? However, there are little moments when the translation does matter. And that's why it's important to have other translations or read commentaries or read study notes because some of this happens. So let's look at 2 Samuel 7 and see how this works. So I'm in the ESV right now. Now, when the king lived in his house, that is David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, tabernacle. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, 
Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right. So that's the first section. The second section is David's response. And so we'll get to that in a second. So this is what's known as the Davidic covenant. Okay. This is an eternal throne. You have a whole uh, note there that's printed for you. And I actually gave you notes from three different study Bibles. Because this is such a major passage, I wanted you to see how different study Bibles deal with this. So the front side is the ESV study Bible. The back side has the Lutheran study Bible. And then the bottom has something called the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. So I've given you three different versions of this so you can see how major this is and three different ways of looking at this. So on your outline, it says, again, it starts off with this messianic promise. Now, who is this person? Well, on one hand, this is obviously Solomon. Because Solomon does build a house for God, and Solomon is chastised by God when he leaves. But Solomon doesn't reign forever. So it's a both and and a not yet when it comes to this passage. And there's some great irony in here. David wants to build God a house, and God says, I'm going to build you a house, but the house that I'm going to build for you is a dynasty, really. It's not an actual physical house. And so in the same way that I've been in a tabernacle, now I'm going to, do, uh, I'm going to actually build you this house. So it's God making this promise. That's in verses 6 to 7 there. Okay, so kind of breaking this down, I'm going to scoot over here a little bit so the people that are online I'm recording can kind of see this in more detail. And you can see this up on the screen if you would like on these different translations. But again, we're going to get to that moment here uh, later on where there's a difference in translation. So the first thing, right, David's desire here, you can sympathize with David, right? David's in Jerusalem, he's in a cedar house, and he thinks God's dwelling in a tent because the tabernacle is a tent, and it's a temporary place. So on one hand, you agree with David, because it's hard for David to say, how am I sitting here in this house, and the God, Yahweh, the God of our, our country, is out here, and this doesn't make any sense. So could you see how that would keep him up at night? Something that would just be like, this, this, we got to fix this. You can see the desire. It's not an evil desire. And God actually makes a covenant after this. It's not like David's wrong. He just doesn't understand everything. He just has limited information. But the desire itself to build God a house isn't bad. That's why Nathan the prophet actually confirms it initially. Right? Notice how, notice how he responds, right? Nathan says to the king, go and do that as all in your heart, for the Lord is with you. As far as David knows, I mean, as far as Nathan knows, David's doing the right thing too. 
So again, there's no great sin here or anything like that. They're just operating from limited information. And then Lord, the Lord comes to Nathan. You know, if you if you come to worship today at eight at already eight thirty, or if we're coming to eleven o'clock here later today, um, we talk about this with the prophets and the difference between these prophets and Jesus. These prophets. Notice, notice how Nathan talks throughout this whole thing, right? And the number one, he receives this word, but then he has to say, "Thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts." Notice how he has to say stuff like that, saying, "Okay, what I'm giving to you right now is it me? This is coming from God." Whereas Jesus will say. Verily, verily, I say unto you, right? Truly, truly, I say unto you, just from his own authority. So if anybody ever tells you Jesus didn't claim to be God, just make you could even just make that comparison by itself. And if you think about what Jesus is doing there, he's speaking not on, on anybody's authority, but his own in some cases. You have heard it said, but I say to you, right? Here we have Nathan, though, and Nathan saying, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, right? That's where we get the phrase, by the way, Lord God of, if you hear, that, hear us use that word in uh, especially traditional worship, uh, God of Sabaoth, S-A-B-A-O-T-H. You'll hear it like in the Holy, Holy, Holy or something. Um, that just means Lord of hosts or Lord of, or Yahweh, God of armies. You'll hear it translated that way. But the Lord of hosts, that's where that comes from. If you've ever heard us use that in worship, okay? Um, the trans the commentary I use says Yahweh, the God of armies. But the Lord of hosts is certainly accurate there. So notice that Nathan is giving him that word, okay? And then again, God recounts salvation history like he likes to do. Say, hey, have I proven myself before? And the answer is, is there. And so then we get this idea that he's going to get a house, right? And that Israel is going to dwell securely and that this kingdom will be forever. So I'm going to scroll down here. Here it is. I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body. This isn't just a spiritual descendant. This is an actual genetic, physical descendant of David. That's going to come uh, later on in this line. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so this is interesting. In all scripture, we need to always have that tension, which is the now and the not yet. That exists throughout all of scripture. For example, has heaven started now? Yes. But is heaven here yet? Not yet. Are you a saint? Yes. Do you still sin? Well, yes. So are you still full? Are you fully redeemed? Well, fully redeemed. All the work's done. Yes. But are you still a sinner? Yes. Right? So there's that now and not yet tension throughout all of scripture. Okay. This is another great example of this, even in prophecy, that now, not yet. So when Solomon comes onto the scene and Solomon builds the temple, that is a now. It is fulfilled, but it's not forever. So it's the not yet. That now and not yet, when you read scripture with that tension in mind, it helps immeasurably. Especially when we start dealing with things like prophecy and covenants and promises and the second coming and all those different things, because some of that is hinted at here. It's very, very helpful if you think now and not yet, because if you say now, you end up with something called preterism. That's a heresy that Jesus has already come or that he's not coming back. That's a heresy that's already all fulfilled. And then on the other hand, you get these weird kind of like last uh, end times dispensational things where you have charts of how the end times are going to happen in particular with this and then this and then this and then this and that. Okay, cut off the end of the state. Okay, it's now and not yet. That tension is throughout scripture, now and not yet. So is heaven here? Yes. Is heaven to come? Yes. Are you a saint? Yes. Are you still a sinner? Yes. Does Solomon fulfill this promise? Yes. But also not yet because it's not the complete fulfillment of this prophecy. So that typology idea that you get these hints, these people that point ultimately to Christ, that's very, very clear in here. Okay, so, and of course, but the promise again is a genetic descendant of David. This is, by the way, when we get to the New Testament, 
why it's so key for us that Luke and Matthew have those genealogies. Because it shows who David comes from. And we think, because those, by the way, if you don't know this, those genealogies don't match. They don't match. They have different reasons for putting them there, right? One is the most common interpretation in the scriptures for these descents coming from David is one is David's legal descent and the other his descent through Mary, which is his physical descent. So you get both because Joseph is his adoptive father. So he's in that by right. And then Mary also, because they're both of the house and lineage of David in that sense. So you get both. And then Matthew uses numerology because he's more Jewish. And so you get that all broken down and stuff like that, but they don't match. Luke has a more cosmic view. Matthew has a more earthy view, which is why he mentions the wife of the wife of Uriah, David's uh, adulterous relationship he has, right, with Bathsheba. He doesn't even name him by name. He emphasizes the adultery. He says he has Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Matthew. And so this this way, going through the through the New Testament, you should know this that because this promise is right here, where it says, "From my own body," right, from your own body. We need to know that Jesus fulfills his prophecy, because otherwise he wouldn't be the Messiah. So being of the house and lineage of David is a big thing. That's why they go to Bethlehem in the Christmas story in the first place, right? And it says that because he was of the house and lineage of David. There we go. So that, that matters here. Um, and we see this. That's why. This, this is ground zero, 2 Samuel 7, for, that prom for this prophecy. Now, this is why we think this is also applying to Solomon right here. Uh, chapter uh, verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Jesus doesn't sin, right? Nobody, he takes on sin for us, right? But God, the father doesn't have to discipline Jesus, right? Because Jesus didn't do anything wrong and he doesn't use other people to punish Jesus. And so this, this, and the idea that, that his son would build a house that's why you'll have some interpreters that'll say this is a now this is both Solomon and the Messiah, right? Because of this, this is another great example of this. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as it did from Saul, okay, whom I put away before you. And then, and your house and kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So then we get this immediately thereafter. And of course, his son Solomon dies. So something's going to have to happen with this throne that's beyond Solomon. So it's looking to him and yet beyond him. That's the important thing here. So on, on this idea, so on your study guide that I gave you, this sheet, if you have it, it, the way it talks about this from the ESV study Bible does a good job. It says, this points to Solomon who would sit on the throne of Israel and build the house for the name of the Lord and eventually to Jesus, the Messiah who would sit on the throne eternally, thus establishing David's thrones forever. So it's a both and, not an either, not an either or, but a both and, okay? And then David's going to respond um, in a prayer in just a second. On the bottom here, seven, uh, where it says, I have not lived in a house, nothing in the regulations about the Ark of Exodus suggests that it was placed in a building. Rather, it, need, it needed carrying poles. The shrine at Shiloh did, not, did have a door and was called a house or temple. But even a tent could be called a house. And since there is also a reference to the entrance of the tent of meeting, it may be that some kind of structure was built around the tent at Shiloh. The Ark had also been in the house of Amminadab for several decades, but that was considered a temporary expedient. So again, and God says, do I need this? Do I really need this? The answer is no, right? He doesn't need this. And so God kind of turns this request of David on his head. On the other side, you have the Lutheran study Bible here. There's a there's an interesting prayer here. It's, it's a, how they show the typology. It says, the Lord tells David and Nathan, not that they will do, 
but he will do and make for David an everlasting house and kingdom. It's not what David's going to do. It's what God's going to do. That's the important thing. And all we do for the Lord, we must first consult his word to find out what is pleasing to him. Jesus Christ is the rest and house promised to David. In him, God's people have rest from their enemies of sin and death. And in him, they shall dwell forever. So they do a good job in the Lutheran Study Bible giving you application. That we're like, how should I read this devotionally? They do a good job giving you that application as far as things go. And then the other important thing at the very bottom of this, this is what I want you to hear contextually. So this is from the Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. If you don't know this commentary series, it's kind of expensive. And I have a digital copy of this just because I was teaching it. But it goes through what the surrounding cultures are like during this time and shows you like archaeological evidence. So what was the Assyrians like during this time? What was Egypt like during this time? What were the Greeks like? What were the So the surrounding kind of Mediterranean world, it gives you some context of how important the Bible is. And it actually makes the God of Israel, Yahweh, stand out even more. When you read about this because it's so different than the surrounding cultures that's why you have this note check this out it says the biblical emphasis on yahweh's giving his people rest is unusual in the ancient near eastern context where it was generally deemed the responsibility of the people to provide a place of rest for the deity a temple in other words in ancient mesopotamia the chief purpose of the state was to provide shelter and food for the gods to fail to do so was high treason such provision was made through the cult and the center of the cult was the temple, the house of the gods or the main god. The building and repair of the temple was the responsibility of the ruler. And so think about the difference. Think about the difference. The Egyptian gods, the Mesopotamian gods, the Greek gods. You need to build me something here. You need to, I need this. You build me this, right? You need to give me sacrifices. You need to build this. And if you're the king, like Nebuchadnezzar, or Azranazapal, you know, like the king of Assyria. If you're one of these Mesopotamian kings, one of your primary duties, every year you went through a ritual humiliation and then became the representative of the gods. And so you had to watch over the temple. And so half of your job was religious. It was pagan, but it was religious. And so think about those big ziggurats. You all know what a ziggurat is, right? Those huge pyramidal structures in the ancient Near East in places like Ur and Uruk, right? That's where Abram, Abram was from, one of those places, from Ur. Okay, so these big stack, huge pyramids, they were primarily religious centers. And so if you're the king, you ruled there, but it was kind of scary. Because if you didn't do the rituals right, or if you appointed the wrong priests, or if you didn't keep the, the temple in good shape and, and, and lavish it with gifts, the gods might be angry with you because you didn't take care of the gods properly. You didn't house the gods in the right way. And then here we have God saying, I don't need a house. I'm going to build you one. That's amazing. That does not happen. That does not happen anywhere in the ancient world. This is where this is the only when, when you've heard Pastor Dinger say this, you need to know this. And we see this in this passage. Christianity is the only religion where God comes to you because you can't come to him. It's the only one. And of course, that would include the Jewish worldview of the Old Testament. Right. But that Judeo-Christian worldview where God says, I'm going to accomplish this. In the book of Ezekiel, because all these shepherds are corrupt, I'm going to come be the shepherd. Because I don't need a house, he's the maker of the universe after all, I'm going to build you a house. Because you can't fulfill all the law, I'm going to come and fulfill the law. Because See what's happening? That's a God for us, a God for you. And that's a really, really key thing for us here. So we miss this. This is what I mean. Well, That's why these contextual things are helpful, because it shows you how the God of Israel stands out compared to all these ancient pagan deities. It's it's awesome. 
Okay, and then this last part, look at this, this father-son terminology. This is again from the illustrated backgrounds. The father-son terminology that Yahweh uses to describe his relationship to David's royal descendant is keeping with the bond of intimacy that God feels towards David. Unlike in Egypt, where the Pharaoh was considered divine, the king in ancient Israel was not truly a god, but one who metaphorically partook of a familiar relationship with God. Sometimes this sacral kingship, um, this concept was transformed into a fall deep, far deeper reality with the incarnation of Jesus. So, right, we see this again with Solomon, that he will be like a son to me, then it's actually God's son. It goes even further. And so that sacral relationship. But yeah, in the ancient Near East, they were sometimes even called the image of God, the gods, the, the kings, right? But in this case, they were semi-divine. Uh, if you know the Epic of Gilgamesh, you've ever heard that, that story before? He's kind of a demigod. He's part God, part man. He's kind of a superman. He can beat everybody up. He's bigger, faster, stronger than everybody else. So the gods create kind of like his counterpart, and they wrestle for a couple of days, and then they become like best friends. It's kind of a weird story, to be honest. It's the world's great first epic, right? But in that case, Gilgamesh is viewed as semi-divine, okay? And here, David or Solomon, they're not called God at all. But they are in that familial relationship with God. And now, because of the coming of Christ, again, new covenant, old covenant, we are all called children of the Most High God in our baptisms. And so it's not just David, not just the priests, not just the nation of Israel. It's all who are found in Christ. So that ante is up here as we see this in a in a Second Samuel 7. I love this. And then so uh, in your Lutheran study Bible, we're going to continue here. You see this note about David. It says, in humility... David acknowledges that everything the Lord has done and will do for him and for Israel is due solely to the Lord's mercy. Today, what great bless, blessing comes your way? So glorify the Lord for his gifts. His greatest gift is the one, the great one to come, Jesus, the son of David. And then you have a little prayer there. So here's David's response. And this is where you're going to see a little bit of difference uh, in the translation. So I'm going to pop this up. Uh, if you have the ESV in front of you, it'll be a little bit different. But David's response to the covenant. Okay, so I'm going to be now on the right side. I'll try to highlight this as I go. But this is from the Evangelical Heritage Version. The Wisconsin Synod, we are not in fellowship with them, but they're very similar to us in, in the sense that we're confessional biblical uh, church bodies, put out this translation called the Evangelical Heritage Version. And we're going to get to a phrase about this man to come. And it's different in some translations. I want you to see this and how David responds. Then King David went and sat before the Lord and said, I'm in verse 18. So again, I'm reading from a different version. Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me to this point? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, Lord God. You have also spoken about the house of your servant for a long time into the future. Is this the law for the man, Lord God? See that? Is this the law for the man? The man. Who is this the man, right? If you, if you head over to the ESV, it's a little bit different, right? Because if you go to the if you go to this, right? And this instruction for mankind, oh Lord God, do you see the difference in the verses? So in verse 19 in the ESV, it says instruction for mankind. But in the Evangelical Heritage Version, it says, is this the instruction or law for the man, Lord God? So is this just a generic promise, or is this about the man to come? Yes. See the difference? See, see what's going on? So in my big blue commentary, I didn't bring it in today. In my big blue commentary, it goes into the Hebrew and it talks about this for like four pages because of all the different translations that are going. And so the Concordia commentary in our synod and the translators of this Wisconsin translate that as the man. 
because there's a way to translate it that way and they think it's actually more accurate so David after hearing this promise promise he knows that there's something somebody coming from him he knows there's a single male individual that's going to come from him that's going to fulfill this instruction that something's going to happen here through this single individual and so you would miss that you see what I mean in some translations that's why translation matters and commentaries matter and so this the man lord god you even have this note here right see footnote d literally this law of the man adonai yahweh this statement is cryptic and the meaning is much debated most translations take it to mean something like is this your usual way of dealing with mankind lord god martin luther understood it to be a direct reference to christ so again this is why your translations matter Okay, so this is why we, we use them. Again, I'm not saying you should throw out your translations. Read your Bibles. I'm just saying sometimes these study tools can be helpful. And this is a great example where you can find this. All right, it continues with this. What more can David say to you? This is David talking about himself. You know your servant, Lord God, because of your word and according to the plan of your heart, you have carried out this great thing in order to make your servant aware of it. Therefore, you are great, Lord God, because there is none like you. There is no God except you, in keeping with everything we have heard with our ears. Who is like your people Israel, the one people on earth whom God went out to redeem for himself, to make them his people, and to make a name for himself? You yourself did great and awe-inspiring things for your land in the presence of your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, in the presence of the nations and their gods. You established your people Israel for yourself to be your people forever. You, Lord, became their God. Now, Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Your name will be great forever. People will say, the Lord of armies is God over Israel. The Lord of your servant David will be established before you. Right? So God of armies as opposed to the God of hosts. Same thing. You can see this in this translation here. But pretty amazing. That Exodus moment, looking back, God has done this in the Exodus. So here's David. And remember, the Exodus is at least, depending on the conventional date, three or four hundred years before this. And yet it seems like a living memory for the people of Israel, right? It's right and it's, it's established for them. The other thing that I wanted to make a connection for you here, too, is think about if that translation, the man, works. What you should have in your mind is a Genesis and then not only Genesis 3, but also Genesis with Abraham. So, so if you go all the way back to salvation history and this promise to David, so if David's quoting the Exodus, like this is a living memory, he knows the, the, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books, right? He knows them. David knows those books. The people of Israel know those books, the books of Moses, that Moses was the editor and redactor of those books. Genesis 3.15, right? God curses the, curses the ground, curses the serpent, and makes that promise, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, right? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. It's a single male individual. So that promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Then in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, actually I'm skipping ahead. Then you go to Abraham. God says through, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Right, we get that in Abraham. Then you get to Moses, Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to raise a prophet from among you. Listen to him. And so you get these promises through Genesis, through Exodus, through Deuteronomy. You get these judges, and now you've got kings. And now if that's why we think this translation is correct, right? Right here. The servant for your long time into the future, is this the law? Is this the instruction for the man? 
Is this the one that's going to crush the head? Is this the one who is the prophet we're supposed to look for? Is this the one from whom all nations will be blessed? You see why this makes sense? Mm -hmm. And that's why they've made that decision translating this. That's why we think this is a messianic prophecy. And then David, in great humility, responds to this. Saul would not have responded this way. Well, those of you who have been in this class, Saul's kind of Mr. Macho Man, chest thumper. He's the guy that scores the touchdown and does this thing. You know, and it's all about him. That's Saul, okay? He's the greatest. He's looking around. He likes the accolades. He looks the best. He's the tallest in the room. Um, and his daughter, we see in the previous chapter when David brings in the Ark of the Covenant, is wants David to be that way because that's what her dad was like. That's what you do to be kingly. And so when David's dancing around with the common people and leading worship, she thinks he's being an idiot. And so she confronts him over that. So his own daughter has that pride too, kind of, you know, chip off the old block, so to speak. But Saul, if Saul had been told this promise, he's like, well, of course. Of course this is going to happen with me. I'm the great king, right? That's not how David responds. David responds, and you can hear an echo from one of his physical descendants also. Think about what he says right at the beginning. I want you to make this connection. It's really kind of neat here, right? Here we go. Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me to this point? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Think about this. Read this. I would just sometime challenge yourself with this. We're not going to do it today just for the interest of time. Read this and then read Mary's response. Read how Mary responds about this, right? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. Think about this. Who am I? See, see the echoes here? So God makes this promise to David, and then Mary's on the scene, humble, lowly, like David, and she also responds with great faith and great, great humility, like her ancestor David. So you can see these things as they unfold through Scripture. It's really neat when you see that whole story as it unfolds. So think about that. If, if, if you want to make some other New Testament connections, think about that connection between Mary and David, because Mary is one of his descendants. Okay, some other comments that I want to kind of make out of this. Who is like your people, the one people on earth? We know from Paul in Romans 9 through 11, that all Christians are grafted into Israel, right? We're grafted in. There's one people of God, okay? It's all all true believers that are in ethnic Israel, but then all believers afterwards and during this time that are grafted in, like a wild olive branch. That's how Paul uses this analogy. So this is us. So if you can think about this, right? Who is like your people Israel? That's the church. That's us, Okay. The one people on earth whom God went out to redeem for himself. There's one people of God to make them his people and make a name for himself. God declares his glory through the church, through the means of grace. So what do we do here at Grace Lutheran? We're about word and sacrament. We're about making disciples, right? We're proclaiming the greatness of God. This is what we do. This is our call. This is here, right? You yourself did great and awe-inspiring things for your land in the presence of your people. And God is still doing these things in the presence of his people even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of death, and even in the midst of things that we're seeing here. It's pretty amazing. Now, Lord God, confirm forever. God's promises are always true. God's promises are always yes in Christ. I love that line. I will say, I use that in my sermon today. But God's promises in the Old and the New Testaments are always yes in Christ. He cannot deny himself. So when David says this, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do of you have spoken. David's just saying, Lord, how do we say this, by the way? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the Lord's, it's the Lord's prayer. 
it's not that like God's going to stop doing what he's going to do, but this is, this is the Lord's prayer. This is exactly the sort of sentiment that we have in the Lord's prayer. Your name will be great forever. People will say the Lord of armies is God over Israel. The house of your dear David, servant David will be established before you. Okay. And that again, for thine is the glory and the power, right? I mean, you can just go on and on. And so see these echoes in these hints, even the way we worship here, here in this passage. And then this last part here, you, Lord of armies, or again, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have whispered into the ear of your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. That's kind of an interesting way of saying it, right? The ESV has something a little bit similar. Let me go back to this. It's verse 27, right? The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, had made this revelation to your servant. Doesn't even sound like the same verse in a way, does it? But it shows you, it's like, how literal do you translate this? Or do you just give the, right? That's a decision that translators make. That's why you want to see this. But God often is subtle. And in this case, he uses Nathan to whisper this into David's ears. Right? We see this earlier with the call of Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We see this later on with Elijah when he's in the cave. There's a fire and there's an earthquake. And then a still, small voice that's whispering there. Right? So if that's the hint, now here's my, my little challenge for us today, my little kind of devotional thought, is... Uh, are we quiet enough to hear God when he speaks to us? Because sometimes I think we're too busy or too loud, <laughs> right? We're bombarded constantly, constantly distracted. I mean, I can't tell you, my son's sitting over here. I, I have a love-hate relationship with this, right? I kind of, uh, I had a, a professor from the university, uh, Concordia Irvine, actually, in our Senate. And he calls this, I, he said, I'm a neo-Luddite. <laughs> so if you don't know about the Luddites, that's a little American history and really Europe too. The Luddites were people that went around destroying technology because they thought it was dehumanizing people, yeah. right? They were destroying factories or destroying machines because they thought it was uh, ruining the just the humanity or ruining our way of life. They destroy machines, okay? And so he, he says, I'm a neo-Luddite, or in other words, he has, I'm a hypocritical Luddite. I hate it, but I use it. And so I'm the same way. Yeah, go ahead. But just the point of fact, uh, named after a guy named Ned Ludd. <laughs> That's where the that's where the Luddite the Luddite came from, right? There you go, Ned Blood. Okay, so but it's the same, but because this can get to the point, and sometimes I use it for good things, right? Talking to my family, I'm you know, so you can even grade on this thing, okay? You do stuff like that, and so yeah, I'm being productive. I'm I'm doing this, or I have to have it on me because it's counting my steps for working out, because then I get rewarded at by our by our health plan or something. I mean, I mean, seriously, I I have 85 justifications for why I have this for good for good reasons. But then if I really think about it, with all of this stuff and the extra busyness, am I actually taking time to listen to God? Do I take, and that's where we use the word quiet time. Or do I just go, well, I got nothing else to do, so what can I read? And I'm an information glutton that shocks none of you in here who know me. Okay, I constantly am learning. I'm, I'm an information glutton. Do I hear, like David here, David hears this whisper in God's ear, right, in his ear. I mean, God whispers into his ear. Do I hear that? And my answer, if I'm honest with myself, is often no. I might say, oh, check my box. I did my devotion today. I read my Bible. Now I'm on to the next thing. Right? Do I sit and actually chew on God's word? Do I let it actually speak to me? Do I actually enter into reflective, contemplative prayer? Or do I just say, okay, thanks, God, bye, and then go to breakfast and go to the rest of my day, right? So this is a, I had to think about this because am I actually able to listen to God or am I just too distracted? Whether it's because of my own reason and my own doing, or because of the nature as 21st century Americans, how we live our lives with that kind of constant go, 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 right? And constant bombardment of entertainment and information. It's worth a thought. 
are we actually receptive to the word of God? You know, I was just laughing. I read a commentator. No, it wasn't a commentator. It was like a podcast or something about this passage. And they were using this quote from the evangelical heritage version, right? This idea of this whispered in my ear. Let's see, where was that? It's down here, right? Yeah. You, Lord of armies, the God of Israel, has whispered into the ear. Some Somebody wrote, uh, I can't remember what it was. He's like, I, he's like, he was trying to whisper in my ear, but I had my headphones in. <laughs> I was, okay. I get, I get what he was saying there because I related to that very, very deeply there. And so like David wouldn't have been able to hear it. He would have had Spotify or iTunes or something on, right? And he wouldn't have been able to hear God because he was too busy listening to the latest thing. Go ahead. This is kind of interesting to me in a different light in that uh, I, I don't remember the point in history. You certainly do. But we're basically... Uh, once the children of Israel were freed from Egypt, they had to be taught how to be Jews again. Right. And we're and here we are, uh, hundreds of years later, and God is still making sure they understand who they are and who He is, and where they fit into the program and the King. The whole thing is still a learning thing. It's still He's still instructing them, yeah. still teaching them, still loving them. Right. It, it like it never ends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can never. I mean, if you had a God that you could grasp, He would be too small. Right. Yeah. That's well, that's putting him in a house like that. They kind of haven't got the picture yet of how big he is. Right. And he Solomon even says that when Solomon dedicates the temple, we'll get to that in my class, by the way, for those who are in my class, um, we'll get to Solomon dedicating the temple. And that's one of the comments he says, will you, can the God of the universe you know, dwell in a temple built both hands? Yeah. So Solomon himself even asked that question when he gets to the building of the temple. And when he has this really long, if you get to first, Chron uh, first second Chronicles, it's actually second Chronicles, this huge, long, extended prayer. From the dedication ceremony and you can hear it in solomon too this who am i and what can that god even dwell here um the last a couple of la last comments before we break we're about three or four minutes and then i gotta um, get ready for the next service because i'm the only person on duty today so <laughs> so i'll have to take a little bit of a break here and you know get all uh, uh suited up again and stuff like that with my with my microphone and everything pastor sheets because he has that he has his clerical shirt so he strings it up underneath so i don't have that luxury so I have to retape everything and all that other fun stuff. So I'll be I'll be doing that in a second. Couple last comments from this response from David, and then we'll we'll kind of break here. Um, on your outline, it says in this moving prayer. This is on the first side now on the bottom. Okay, first side on the bottom. I just want to just if you if you if you're a study person or if you like to do this sort of thing, it counts uh, how many times he says things in this moving prayer. It's the second to last on the bottom on the first side. David uses the praise "O Lord God" or "O Lord God" eight times expressing his close intimacy with God. Okay, and now they translate it the other way, so I'm skipping that. But that third or fourth thing where it says, there is none like you and there is no God beside you in verse 22 is an explicit statement of monotheism. That's a huge deal because in the surrounding cultures, this is the only monotheistic faith. And they didn't come up with this on their own. It's a God, it's what we call a God thing, although all things are a God thing. But you'll find modern critics. I want to I want to word this because I you, a lot of you know I like apologetics, defending the faith. You'll find modern critics that will say, "Well, Yahweh was just a competitor god for the ancient Israelites, and eventually he just kind of won out." And so what they're trying to do is trying to show that Israel is no different and it's not unique and it's just like all the other surrounding nations. And they came to monotheism later. It was a later development after you know years and years of philosophy and all these different sort of things. But that's not correct. Now, but they'll say, but we find idols in Israel. And I was like, I know. I read the Old Testament. You are going to find idols in Israel. They screw up all the time. And so they've reversed the order. You see what's happened? So in secular historians, what they'll do now is they'll say, Israel have multiple gods, including some of the local gods, like 
Baal, the storm god, or maybe Osiris in Egypt. They have all these different gods, or Ishtar, um, or Ashtaroth. She called Ashtaroth in the Old Testament, but it's Ishtar in, in Greek. It's Aphrodite, just so you know, okay? So they have these different uh, different gods and goddesses, and that Yahweh was just kind of their tribal god, and that over years and years, he kind of won out, and that's what, that's what they'll tell you, just so you know. If you read a secular textbook, that's what they'll tell you about ancient Israel. They'll agree that Israel mon was monotheistic, but that it was kind of a developed monotheism and that they had all these rival gods and different god tribes of different gods. What they're doing is they're just misreading the archaeological evidence. And so if you read the Old Testament, all you have to do is say, are you going to find pagan deities buried in ancient Israel? The answer is yes, because Israel flirts with these other gods over and over and over and over again. So, of course, you're going to find these pagan deities buried in the dirt because that's what Israel did. Okay, but that doesn't mean that the claim to monotheism is somehow some later development. No, we have it here, this early. We even have it in the name of God, Yahweh. So this is part of it, too, because I think many of these archaeologists and historians need to take one Bible class. Just one. Because the name Yahweh means the self-existent one in which there is no other. All He's the necessary being. He has all existence in himself. Or as our, our philosophers like to say, he is that which nothing greater can be conceived. You can't think of anything greater. That's God, okay? And they're calling him Yahweh over and over and over and over again, the I am that I am, over and over, every time you say Yahweh. So these historians are going around saying, well, Yahweh is just a tribal God. The I am is just a tribal God. Wait a minute, what's his name? <laughs> Do you understand what that name means? And the answer is no. <laughs> they probably don't. Or they're, or they're, they're or as the Second Peter says, they're willfully ignorant. You know, they intentionally are misreading that. And so, no, by even just giving God that name, and God himself gives himself that name, of course, in, in Exodus 3.14, he is not like the other gods. And in fact, here in 2 Samuel, there is no other gods, is what David is saying here. All those other tribal gods are nothing. You're the God who actually wins. You're the God who actually rules the, rules the world. You're the God who has chosen this people. And that's why David is so humble. Who am I? Right? And that should be our approach. When we think about our baptisms, when we think about Holy Communion, when we hold Christ's body and blood, when we receive his gifts, who am I to receive God's gifts? But then he says, come, right? All has been made ready and eats. That should humble us. And that's the God we're serving. Let's close with prayer. Lord God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises to your servant, David, way back in the 900s to 1000s BC, 3000 years ago, Lord, you made this promise. That you would have, he would have a descendant, a physical descendant that would reign forever. And Lord, he comes 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years after David. We see our Savior, who not only is for the people of Israel, but for all mankind. So help us, Lord, to cling to those promises. Help those of us who are struggling and those of us who have uh, heard some hard news these last couple of days to cling to those promises. And Lord, thank you that your promises are always yes in Christ. And that because you cannot deny yourself and you are the God of the universe, all your promises ultimately come true, and there's nothing, no person, no entity, no desire, no evil source that can prevent your forces, I mean, from prevent your designs from coming true. So help us, Lord, to realize that if you are for us, no one can be against us. We ask these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.